Good morning. I told you I'd be back. It's good to see you today. Our, um, I spoke with our pastor last night, and he is, uh, he is on his way home this morning, so Lord willing, uh, he'll be back here with us uh, this evening and, and next Sunday, and uh, we're really excited about that. Uh, what Pastor Justin did not tell you, uh, a part of the, the fine arts, especially the, um, the team that won the first place position, is that his son Lucas was a part of that team. And uh, both the Burchett girls were a part of that team, too, and, and several others. I, I shouldn't have started naming names, but um, <clears throat> as a proud papa, I'm sure that, that he wants them to, to know that he's so proud of them. Uh, this morning, uh, if you have your Bible or if you have your notes, we're going to be looking in Joshua chapter 7. So I'd ask you to go ahead and turn there. As you're doing that, I want to uh, I kind of uh, tee us up for what we're going to be talking about today uh, in the Scripture Leading up to Joshua chapter 7, you have the events of Moses' life, the people of, of Israel or the Hebrews. Uh, they have been enslaved in the land of Egypt for hundreds of years, and God has raised up uh, Moses, who is going to go into Egypt. He's going to deliver his people out of bondage, out of slavery, and they are going to wander, uh, stumble really through the, uh, the wilderness for uh, an entire generation for about 40 years before they come to a land that God is returning to them. God calls it the promised land because he promised them that he would bring them back. And so um, what we're going to read today is on the hills of all of these events. Uh, Joshua has uh, been an assistant to Moses. Moses has died just on the edge of the promised land. And Joshua, a military commander, has now taken over, and he's leading several million people. Not exactly sure how many, but uh, we, we believe no less than two million, uh, as many as six million people uh, in these tribes that are traveling from the land of Egypt into their new territory. And so uh, the Bible picks up here um, talking about Joshua's conquest because as God sends them into the land, uh, they don't just get to go in the land and set up shop. They have to go in and they have to take back the land uh, from people who have taken the land from them. And so they have to battle and wage war. And the portion of scripture we're about to to read is just following the events of Jericho. And so Joshua and his people, they have surrounded the city of Jericho. They've been in strict obedience to what the Lord has asked them to do. They marched around the city. The walls have fallen. They conquered Jericho. And the Bible picks up here in the very last verse of chapter six, and we're going to read the whole chapter. So bear with me. Uh, it's in your notes. It'll be on the screen if you don't have those. But the very last verse of chapter six the Bible says, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. But the people of Israel broke faith in regards to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabid, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. Now, what's important to understand is that when uh, the people ransacked Jericho, God told them, he said, there are some things that I want you to take, some of these, these um, the gold and some of the treasure, and I want you to put this in the treasury of the Lord. I want you to dedicate some of these things, devote some of these things to the Lord. But there are some of these things, as a matter of fact, most of these things are not devoted to the Lord. They are devoted to destruction. 
And so what we have here is we have a man, one of the warriors, that in the raid, he has taken some of the things that were devoted for destruction. And the Bible says, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. But because the people of Israel didn't know that that had happened, the Bible continues that Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel. And he said to them, go out and spy out the land. And the men went up and they spied out Ai and they returned to Joshua and they said, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there for there are only a few. <clears throat> so about 3000 of them went from there to the people and they fled before the men of Ai and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people of Israel melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us, would that we would have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned its backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear about it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I have commanded them, and they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them in their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They, they turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. You see the connection here. As people attach themselves to things that are devoted for destruction, they themselves become devoted for destruction. And so the Lord says, get up and consecrate the people and say to them, consecrate yourself for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned by fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerorites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerorites, man by man. And Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabid, the son of Zerir. And the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise or make confession to him and tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and I have did this. When I saw 
among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar from, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in the tent with the silver underneath. And they took, and they took them out of the tent and they brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel and they laid them down before the Lord and Joshua and all Israel took, excuse me, they took him, Achan, the son of Zerir, and the silver and the cloak and the gold bar and his sons and daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble upon us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, that place is called the Valley of Achor, or in other words, the Valley of Trouble or the Valley of Calamity. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your goodness to us today, Lord. My prayer is that through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, you will give us a greater level of understanding of who you are, of your inclinations of your desires above all else, Lord. Help us to know you in a more profound way. I would ask you, Father, that you would stir up conviction in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would bring comfort to those who need comfort, courage to those who need courage, so that we can be the people that you've called us to be, Lord. So teach us from these events of the life of your people. I pray that you'll bless your word as is spoken in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen and amen. When I was a little guy growing up, my dad, um, he worked for an oil company. And so he would oftentimes go offshore and work oil rigs. And um, my family moved from Milton, Florida. We moved to a place called Laurel, Mississippi. You've probably never heard of it, and that's okay. Uh, but it was a small town called Laurel, Mississippi. And uh, I remember one time specifically, my dad had to go away for a couple of weeks uh, to work on a, an offshore rig in the Gulf. And um, my entire life, I had, my dad had facial hair his entire, uh, my entire life. That's all I had ever known my dad. I think he was probably born with facial hair. That's, that's all I ever knew. And I remember specifically, he had, he had gone offshore and one day when, when he came back a couple of weeks later, because of the type of work he was tr having to do, they made him shave his beard. Uh, I think it was for um, an oxygen mask so that it would, it, the suction would fit around his face. Regardless, um, they made him shave his beard and he came home cleanly shaven. And I remember, I mean, just a little guy, I mean, six, seven years old, maybe even younger than that. And I remember mom said, daddy's home. And I ran over to the door, and when I opened the door, I saw a man, I had no idea who he was. <laughs> and I freaked out. I mean, I screamed, I turned the other direction, there's a stranger in my house, right? I need to protect mom, probably not, I'm going to the room. Mom stayed there, I ran to the room, and, and dad comes in and he's trying to console me. It's me, it's me. And the whole time I was, it was just so bizarre to me because my entire life, my dad was this, you know? 
And now all of a sudden, my dad's not this, he's this. And what my young mind lacked understanding is that dad wasn't just this, and he wasn't just this, but he was this. He was both and. And I think in, in Christian culture, it's so easy for us to have a mindset that focuses on one or two characteristics of God instead of all the characteristics of who he is. And so we talked a little bit of last week about the extremes in a lot of Christian culture. There are extremes of people who consider God incredibly judgmental and just always full of wrath. And then you have another extreme that God is just kind of, you know, a softy. And the, the truth of the matter is that God is not this and God is not this, but God is all of this at the same time. See, I'm not concerned about uh, the people of God uh, in the States uh, you know, breaking the commandment that says you should not uh, carve out false images of God. I don't, I don't think we have woodworkers that are just sitting and waiting, you know, for you to create a false image of God or uh, anything like that. But what I do fear is that although we aren't breaking the command that says do not create a false image of God, I think we often break the command of creating false ideas of who God is. And in the end of all things, it does not matter what we think God is. God is who he is. Our preference does not matter. And I hate to say that because I know that sounds harsh. If you know me, you know I'm not a harsh person. But in the end of all things, it does not matter what we prefer God to be. He is who, we, who he is, and we must accept him at his word. Okay? Now, if a person wants to take the scriptures and find a softy type of God, they can find that. If they want to find a harsh, judgmental, wrathful God, they can find that. But the, the, the truest level of Christianity in discovering who God is, is discovering all the elements of who God is and calling him who he is. And so God even describes himself all throughout the scriptures repeatedly over and over and over again, because he wants people to know him. The fullness of his revelation of who he is, is found in, in the person of Jesus, but all throughout the scripture, we find God describing himself to the people, but oftentimes we lack uh, the understanding as we read scriptures, myself included. But one of the most holistic moments where God describes himself in, in a whole lot of detail, capturing a lot of his characteristics, is found in Exodus 32. Now this scripture I'm going to read, but this scripture is repeated in the Old Testament alone more than 32 times. This scripture of God uh, communicating to humanity, this is who I am. If you want to know what I'm like, this is what I'm like. And so the first time he does it, he does it to Moses. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. And what God is trying to communicate here 
is that although he is a loving and a gracious God, there is a side of God that we don't necessarily prefer that contains the justice of God. And today what I want to uh, kind of help us understand is that, that even in the characteristics of who God is, he still leans certain ways. If that makes sense, God, uh, you can tell by the descriptive nature of what he's saying here. The vast majority of this scripture is talking about his goodness and his kindness and his long suffering and his patience, his merciful nature. He is trying to communicate. I'm good. But there are some things that I just will not tolerate. And so these concepts of grace and mercy and judgment. They are, uh, they are oftentimes intertwined in Scripture. As a matter of fact, you'll be really hard-pressed uh, to find uh, judgment where there's not grace and there's not mercy. And you'll be hard-pressed to find uh, uh, mercy where there's not you know, an element of judgment or at least the, the potential for judgment. And what we have to understand is that, that there are some, some very broad-reaching definitions of these three terms, okay? But for today, what I want to do is kind of uh, put them in a nutshell just so we can work through these things. So even these definitions I'm about to give you, they're not the whole expanse of what grace means or mercy means or just judgment means. Um, but for the, for the purposes of today, uh, let's use these definitions. Grace is when God gives us something we don't deserve and we did not earn. It's from last week, Mephibosheth, a broken individual, a rebellious individual, but the king looks on him with graciousness and he brings him to sit at the king's table all the days of his life. Mephibosheth never earned it. He didn't deserve it. It's like us in our relationship with the Lord. We didn't deserve Christ. We didn't earn Christ, but God gave us Christ as a sacrifice for the sins. So grace is you going to your children who are young for the first time ever, going to them and saying, kids, you probably didn't earn this and you definitely don't deserve this, but mom and dad decided that we are gonna take you, load up the car, and we're gonna spend a week at Disney World. And the kids go crazy. That's grace. That is you giving your children something that they didn't earn, they ain't going to pay for for sure. <laughs> and they don't deserve probably if they're like most of our children. Okay? That is grace. Mercy, on the other hand, is when God gives us, he does not give us what we do deserve. Mercy is when God does not give us what we do deserve. So mercy oftentimes is wrapped, uh, especially for today's purposes, it has a lot to do with second chances and with compassion and with being patient and long-suffering and mitigating consequences of people. That's often what mercy has to do with. So mercy is like this. You go to your children and you say, you didn't earn this and you don't deserve this, but we're loading up the car and we're gonna spend a week in Disney. Hop in. And they get in the car and about seven seconds down the road, they start arguing with each other. Mercy is you not turning the car around before you get to the end of the neighborhood. Instead, mercy is trying to be diplomatic. Is it, guys, listen, 
I'm not going to put up with this. I need you to respect it. Hush. Let, <laughs> shut it. I need you to understand that I'm not going to do this for the next eight hours of drugs. Stop. <laughs> this is mercy. You're, continu you're continuing on. You're being diplomatic. You're allowing, you know, some, some lenience there. This is the idea of mercy. Now, judgment is the, the idea that God allows us to experience divine justice, okay? So judgment looks like this. You put your kids in the car and you tell them, I know you didn't earn this, I need, know you don't deserve this, but we're loading up the car, we're heading to Disney for a week. Seven seconds down the road, they start arguing. You ensue to be diplomatic, please stop. Stop, our, don't hit your sister. Stop doing that. I'm not touching. I know you're not touching. Just stay away. Stop. And then all of a sudden, there comes a line where that mercy ends and that judgment begins. And as you're driving, stop. I'm going to whoop. And you, you know, you're trying. That's the judgment, right? That's the disciplinary. Because you care for them and you want the best for them, not because you're angry, hopefully, but because you don't want them arguing, okay? And if, are you really a parent if you haven't done that to your kids in the backseat, right? <laughs> so so it's, it's important for us to understand the difference between these things because we can sing a lot of songs that intertwine, especially the ideas and the concepts of grace and mercy, and, and they can lose so much meaning if we don't understand really what they are. And so, so biblically speaking, there are a bazillion examples of these three things in action. But if you take um, the son of Adam and Eve, Cain, who, who killed his brother Abel, he was, he was jealous, he was insecure, and so he killed him. Cain receives grace when God protects him and gives him a family lineage, okay? Cain didn't deserve that. Cain didn't deserve to live, okay? But God protected him and he said, as a matter of fact, I'm not just gonna let him live, but if anybody touches him, they will die. And so God gives him something that he didn't earn and he definitely didn't deserve. Cain receives mercy when God doesn't kill him for killing his brother, okay? But Cain receives judgment when God bans him or expels him from the family property. He says, Cain, you've got to go. You violated. You've got to go. This is your lot in judgment. Okay. The woman with, uh, uh, who was caught in the, in the act of adultery, she receives mercy when Jesus doesn't allow her to be stoned. Okay. She deserved to be stoned, but he did not allow that. So he, he did not give her what she deserved. She receives grace when he gives her forgiveness when she definitely didn't earn it. But he gives her judgment when he gives her words of correction and he says, therefore, go and sin no more. And so what you find a lot of times is 
the, the tendency based on your wiring or based on your upbringing or whatever, oftentimes what we find ourselves doing as we listen to sermons or as we read scripture or as we read books, we find ourselves singling out the part of God that we think he is in these, these events that happen in the Bible. And we, we put those over here and we build this case that God is this, 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 instead of this, 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 when all in reality, it's always been that God is all of this. Okay, and what if we're not careful when when we remove one of these three elements, either the merciful nature of God, the gracious nature of God or the justice side of God, what we find is that when one of those are removed, it lessens all the others. Okay, now follow me. If I remove the element of the justice of God, the judgment of God. All of a sudden, I have developed, I have created an image and an idea of God as a pushover. He's never going to get angry. He's not going to get upset about anything. It doesn't matter what I do. And so God becomes this really palatable being that is always pleasant to be around. Okay? On the other side, if we begin to remove the elements of God's graciousness and his merciful nature... All of a sudden, God can become this vindictive, mean, egotistical God that just likes striking people down, okay? And so I would say to us that, that especially in Christian culture in, in the United States, I would say that, that in large measure, we have emasculated God from his justice. We have taken God and we have stripped him down to a God that is always palatable to my life's choices and the things that I want as opposed to the things that he wants. I'm not saying us, because I really think that pastor has built a church that, that really understands the, the, the a holistic nature of who God is. But I'm telling you, and I'm not saying we are higher than it, that is, please understand my heart. But what I'm saying is that if you listen to mainstream Christian preaching, you will rarely hear of the concept of judgment from God. You'll rarely hear about the realities of eternal suffering from God. You'll rarely find books that are written by mainstream Christianity that focus on this side of God because they feel like it's too harsh of a thing for our society uh, to handle. Nonetheless, it does not lessen who God is regardless of who we want God to be. And so in the events of of Achan's life in Joshua chapter 7, we see a beautiful mixture of the goodness of God and the judgment or the wrath or the, the justice that God allows his people to experience. And so real quickly, what I want to do is I just want to talk about a, a, a few things that we can learn from Achan, but then I want to kind of uh, talk about how we can apply this to our own lives. But the first thing that we learn from Achan is this, is that Achan's sin asserts that some things are devoted to the Lord and some things are devoted for destruction. It asserts that some things are devoted to the Lord, okay, And some things are devoted to destruction. Things that are devoted to the Lord are things that should never be violated. So in modern day, I would consider things that are devoted to the Lord would be the lives of the innocent. 
We need to be very careful how we deal with the lives of the innocent that have been devoted to the Lord. The concept and the the sanctity of the marriage relationship is something that God has defined and we need to be very careful that we not violate those things. We understand on the other side that there are some things that are devoted for destruction, which means that there are some things that we should never even get within 10 feet of. There are some things that we just need to really keep at bay because, as I said earlier, oftentimes when we attach and embrace ourselves to things that are devoted for destruction, oftentimes we ourselves devote ourselves to destruction. For instance, pornography. Is, is a, it is an epidemic. I mean, it is an outbreak in, in, in our world today. And what we find is that as a person engages to this thing that, that should be devoted for destruction, it should be a thing that we never even give the, the mental entertainment to. It should never be anything that, that we even come near But all of a sudden, what we find is that as people engage in viewing pornography, a thing that is devoted for destruction, what begins to happen in the process of time is that their lives begin to be destructed. Their lives begin to deteriorate. Their marital relationships begin to to dwindle. All of these elements, why? Because it was a thing devoted for destruction and we thought that we could handle it. But we fooled ourselves and we became a thing that was actually devoted for destruction. So Achan asserts those things, but he also affirms that nothing can be hidden from the Lord. The entire nation of Israel, millions of people had no idea what was going on, but the Lord knew. The writer of Hebrews says that nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. Nothing is hidden from the sight of the Lord. We learn from Achan that sin affects more than just oneself. If you don't believe me, ask the daughters and the sons of the 36 men who lost their lives because of Achan's sin. If you don't believe me, go to work tomorrow and talk to someone who had an affair and their marriage imploded and their family was destroyed. And you ask them if it was worth it or if it only affected themselves, and they will emphatically tell you no, that it affected many, many more. As a matter of fact, in this scripture, God doesn't say to Joshua, he doesn't say Achan has sinned, he says Israel has sinned. So there is this notion of uh, solidarity, it's almost, if one is affected, it affects the community, and that is still very, very true today. A consent awakens a spiritual awareness that there's anything good that comes out of all this, is that it awakens a spiritual awareness in the lives of the people of Israel again. You see, uh, Joshua and the elders in Israel, they responded the right way. They went, they fell before the Lord, they put dust on their heads and they cried out to the Lord all evening. They said, Lord, what have we done? The only mistake they made was assuming that God had failed the people instead of realizing that the people had failed God. But beyond that, their response was was incredible and it led to a place of consecration. Now, the most important two things I I wanna talk about learning from the life of Bacon. The first one is this 
is that Achan's sin announces God's long-suffering and his merciful nature. Now, when you and I read the story of Achan, it can be very difficult for us to see mercy in all of this, right? Because you're like, Corey, they, they killed, they stoned him. It says twice, they stoned him, they stoned him, and then burned him, right? And it wasn't just him, it was his whole family. And it wasn't, they killed his sheep and his donkeys. You're like, where is mercy in all of this? But if you look deeper into the, the events as they unfold, you see the mercy of God so profound and prevalent in this story. No less than five times does God give Achan an opportunity to come clean with his sin. No less than five times. It didn't, God didn't go from you sinned against the Lord, you're dead. He did not do that. The Bible says that he, that he told Joshua, listen, Joshua, tonight go before the people of Israel and tell them, consecrate yourselves. In other words, prepare yourselves, get rid of things that don't need to be a part of your life, the things that were devoted for destruction. If, if you have those, come clean with the Lord tonight because tomorrow the Lord is coming to visit. And when the Lord comes to visit, he's going to take us and he is going to figure out who the culprit is. So the first level of mercy, the first measure of mercy that God gives is when he says, listen, consecrate yourselves. Something is off here and I'm coming to figure it out. The second level, the Bible says that they took all the people tribe by tribe. There were 12 tribes of Israel with, with hundreds of thousands of people in every single tribe. And the Bible says that, that they took the tribes and they whittled it down from the tribes to the clans, to the households, to the individual people. There were moments and measures over and over again of God extending his mercy. Listen to me. This isn't something that happens in 15 minutes. You're talking about no less than 2 million people. Have you ever tried to organize anything with 20 people? <laughs> 2 million, as, as many as 6 million people. And you're trying to say, okay, God says it's not you 11, so I want you to go away. And you know what the frustrating part about that is? They don't want to go away. They wanted to find out what was going on. So they're spectating, they're standing on the sides. Now you got this tribe and everybody seems guilty and people on the side of the 11 tribes, they're picking out who they think's guilty. It is chaos. It probably took hours upon hours, if not an entire day, to go through this process. And every level of the process is an act of the merciful nature of God. He's saying, Achan, my son, just come clean. Like, I don't want to be the one to call you out. I want you to come with it. You know, it's like, it's like with, with your children. With my kids, even, even in, in leadership, we've worked in youth ministry for like 17 years. And, and when we have young leaders, there, there's a lot more accountability and different things. And even with our kids, and we'll, we'll talk to them and we'll say, listen, if, if you mess up, okay, it's okay. We can work with that. But what I cannot work with is if I have to find out that you messed up from somebody else. You come clean with me, I can work with that. That shows an attitude of repentance. But if I find out through the grapevine that this happened, 
I'm not going to have a whole lot of, of mercy with that, okay? And so what you got to understand, this is a very, this is a very uh, a thought-out, well-planned process that is led by God himself. It's the equivalent of God showing up today and saying, hey, listen, South Carolina, consecrate yourselves because something's off, and tomorrow I'm coming to figure it out and to settle things. And when he moves into South Carolina tomorrow, he moves into the city of Lexington, and all of Irmo goes, whoo! <laughs> he moves into Lexington, and then he moves into Millhouse Lane, and then he moves to the Henderson family, and then he moves to Corey Henderson. There are measure upon measure of mercy that God is doing. So, so I would say this. What does mercy look like? It often looks like being given chance after chance after chance after chance to come clean and to own our failings. The seventh thing and final thing that Achan sin teaches us is that his sin acknowledges God's justice through judgment. A couple of weeks ago, my, uh, I, have, I have four children one of my two youngest daughters, um, she's three. Um, my wife and I, we were in the living room. I don't even know what we were doing, but all of a sudden, one of, one of our worst, potentially our worst nightmare uh, came true. She, uh, uh, we heard this loud crash and, and we walked in the room and uh, our, uh, she had been climbing on our dresser, like our chest of drawers dresser, and, and it had fallen. Her weight had, had pulled it on top of her. And uh, I was so thankful that, that she wasn't hurt at all. It, it hurt her leg a little bit, but it didn't, it, it could have killed her. I mean, it was hundreds of pounds, but just the way that it fell, it kind of like pinned her underneath without really, you know, crushing her body. And as I started thinking about that, I thought, you know, she knew what she was doing, but she really had no idea of the weight of what she was dealing with. You know what I mean? And I think when we look at the life of Achan, we, we know that Achan knew what he was doing. He knew that he was sinning against the Lord. He knew that Joshua had commanded there are some things devoted for destruction, some things devoted to the Lord, nothing is devoted to you. Achan knew what he was doing, but I don't know that Achan knew the gravity and the weight of the thing that he was dealing with. I don't think he understood that, that what I'm messing with right now could potentially destroy me, it could potentially crush me. I don't think that he really understood that. Some people may argue that, that maybe Aiken's issue, the reason he didn't come clean was because he, he was afraid and rightfully so. But I would contend that knowing the goodness of God, he had to know how this was going to end. He had to know that he wasn't going to, listen to me, he had just witnessed one of the most miraculous events in all of human history. Walls fell down because people walked around it. Right? He had just crossed over the Jordan River where a man stood in the river and the waters, they split apart so millions of people could walk through. He had to know the power and the majesty of who God was. He had to know how this was going to end. But I'm going to tell you this, he also knew the goodness of God. He also knew the graciousness of God. And so I would, I would suggest that, that if Achan would have come clean at any point in this process, I would suggest that God may have forgiven him and spared his life. I'm not saying that this type of disobedience and rebellion against God, I'm not saying that it doesn't come with consequences. But what I am saying is this, 
is that God will always and forever lean towards mercy before he leans towards judgment. And in this moment, I got to believe that God wasn't giving mercy after mercy in vain. I got to believe that he was given mercy after mercy in order to give Achan an opportunity to come clean. And so as we see the, the mercy of God revealed in scripture, we're instructed that we need to be a people that, that give the mercy of God to others, right? In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, uh, be merciful just as your father in heaven is merciful. And he gives this great incentive. He says, when you are merciful, you will receive mercy when you need mercy, okay? Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying that, that discipline doesn't have its place, I'm not saying that when we're dealing with other people that we just need to be like, ah, just run over me, it's fine. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we should let our kids talk to us any way that they want to. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that we need to first lean towards mercy and give chance after chance until things get to a point of no return. People do not flock to the merciless. They flock to the merciful. And as a church family, I think we are, we are one of the, we are the great, that I've ever experienced. We are the greatest, the most gracious church I've ever experienced or been a part of. We are the most merciful church that I've ever been a part of. I mean that with every part of my being, but we all have a little bit of margin to grow. And I would say to us that as we grow in the Lord, as we grow as a church, as we reach people that are lost, our margin for mercy needs to continue to develop and to continue to increase. We have got to be a people that understand that, that the hurting people that, that hurting people that hurt us or sin against us or fall in, in rebellion to God, they are doing that because they are hurting people. And when they fall, they are not flocking to people that are merciless and cutthroat. They're flocking to a people that are merciful. They're flocking to a God that is merciful and forgiving. This is why Paul would write to the Colossians. He says, since God has chosen you to be his holy people, he loves. You must clothe yourselves with tender mercy, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, and with patience. We deal with the other people. We must learn that mercy is so valuable in the sight of the Lord. Last night, I was... Um, my mercy ran thin last night, I'm just going to be honest. It just so happens I was teaching today on mercy. Uh, Pastor Darren and I, we took our, our boys to a, a Dude Perfect, which is like, it's this YouTube sensation for these great guys. It was amazing. We took them to Charlotte last night, and um, there was this guy sitting behind us. I mean, there are 8,000 people in the room. Most of them are children and moms and dads and stuff, and so it is, it is really loud, you know, and I, I'm a young man. Okay, um, I don't have a lot of hearing problems or anything like this, but um, there was a man that was sitting behind me and like two seats over. That was the loudest individual I've ever heard in my life. He was far more excited and my son was stoked. I mean, our boys were like freaking out leading up. They love, it was amazing. It was a once in a lifetime experience. That's what my son said. He said that was a once in a lifetime experience. I'm so thankful we came, you know? And that was an awesome moment. But this man's excitement far exceeded any child that I saw in that auditorium that night. And as he screamed and yelled and shouted and tried to start 
chants with 8,000 people. My ears started to bleed. And my eye, I felt my eye, I don't know if there is a connection between the eye. My eye started to hurt. I, it really did. I may just be making this up. I don't know. But my eye started to hurt. And so much inside of me wanted to turn around and to say something to this man because my mercy had run out. However, I knew I was preaching this morning, so I, I held it all in. But listen to me. It is so difficult to be merciful with people, especially depending on your personality bit. Because there's some people that are just born and raised and, and, and are just wired to speak their mind and to speak the truth. And that's wonderful. God can use that. But it should never overcome a merciful nature that God wants us to reflect from him. Right? I saw this morning on the way, on the way driving uh, here to church this morning, there was a woman, and I guess she got cut off. Based on her sign language to the other driver, uh, <laughs> Her mercy was done. It was gone. Okay. But as we, as we begin to, to talk about what mercy really looks like, it's, it's us not giving people what they deserve. It's us not talking to them in a way that they deserve. It's us not looking at somebody when consequences unfold and say, that's what they deserve. A merciful nature says, oh, that breaks my heart. The merciful nature says, I need to give them another chance. I remember the first time that I really felt like God allowed me to experience mercy, like in, in the deepest parts of my soul. It was when, um, after we had gone into the second war in, in the Gulf, um, we, had, we had captured um, Saddam Hussein. And I remember watching on TV as they, they, they took him, they had put him through trial and they were going to execute him and, and, and rightfully so. But, but they, they took him and they were walking him to the gallows. And it was like in the moment the Lord stirred my heart for like the first time that I can ever really remember that God stirred my heart. And although there was a sense in me that this is what this man deserves, I understood for like the first time that although this is what that man deserves, and God may indeed see it that way awesome, also. But if God looks at him and says, this is what that man deserves, God is also looking at him with deep compassion. And it was for the first time in my life that I thought, I never thought I would pray for a, a dictator, you know? And as he's walking to the gallows and saying, God had mercy on his soul. Because whether I like what he did with his life and how he treated other people, he is still a human soul and he will spend forever somewhere. And so there was, a, there was a stirring of mercy that stirred inside of me. Even though I believe he deserved the justice in this life, I did not want him to face the judgment in the next life. And so what we, what we have to wrestle with is this tension when we're dealing with our children, when we're dealing with our spouses, when we're dealing with our employees, our coworkers, how much mercy is too much mercy? At what point do consequences need to ensue? And this is only a thing that you and the Lord can determine. There's not a pattern. There's not a system. There's not an algorithm that says after 3.72 times, they've had enough and it's time to unleash havoc on them. It's not like that. It's a thing that we have to discern through the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to tell you this. My inclination 
is not always towards mercy. My, my, my personality type can be a little more black and white. Okay. And so my personality can lean towards having just kind of a, well, they shouldn't have done that. That was dumb. And they kind of, that's what they get. That's kind of how my personality leans, but I have to submit myself to the Holy Spirit and let Christ's life live inside of me and lean towards mercy instead of towards judgment. And here's what's great about it. When we do, listen, God is so good to us. God is so good to us because this is what he does. God gives us mercy. He gives us mercy. And then he enables us to give other people mercy. And when we give other people mercy, he blesses us for doing it. So nothing really in our own strength or in our own power have we done, but God still in his goodness chooses to bless. He's, I'm going to give you some mercy, and if you want to give it to somebody else, I'm going to bless you. It's like being a generous person. God gives us what we don't deserve in our resources. And then he instructs us, be generous to other people, be generous to the church. And, and when we do that, God says, because of your faithfulness, I'm going to bless you all the more. He is so good to us in these regards. But much like grace, I find that, that most, especially folks in, in our church family, we, we don't really have as much of a struggle uh, giving mercy as we do receiving mercy. I speak for, for myself for a moment. Um, again, my personality, I'm not sure if you're into like personality assessments and stuff. I think some of that stuff is just so whack. Uh, but some of it, is absolutely spot on. You can learn a lot about yourself. As a matter of fact, I think, I think for me, it was so good for me to become self-aware. Okay. And if you're not self-aware, ask your spouse and, and they will let you, they will give you all the personality assessment you need. Okay. Um, I, I took a personality assessment, uh, uh, and I, I found it's called an Enneagram, and I'm, I'm a type 1 Enneagram, which basically means that, that I can see things as, as very black and white at times. I'm, uh, you know, I, like, I like it when things are done a certain way and responsibility and all this kind of stuff. But what, what I found, and, and even in reading this explanation of a personality type, one thing that it said, it said that my personality type, aside from the other eight, it, the defining characteristic is that my personality type has what we call an inner critic. And it means that this inner critic, day in and day out, hour in and hour out, my soul is bombarded with this critical thinking about myself. I never measure up. I wasn't good enough. If I fall, I deserve, you know, death, hell, and the grave. You know, I, I deserve all of the worst. I never, uh, you know, I, I don't deserve any blessing. Therefore, I'm not going to embrace any blessing. It's a very weird kind of thing. And I remember talking to my wife and a couple of friends about it one time. And they were like, that, that really happens in your head? And I'm like, that doesn't happen in your head? You know? I'm like, Yes. I've lived with this my entire life, this inner critic. And so, so especially for me, when, when I fall or when I mess up or whatever it is, it is so difficult for me to receive mercy from the Lord. It is so hard for me. Because in my mind, if there is a consequence, I deserve the worst of the consequences. I don't deserve to be let off the hook. I don't deserve forgiveness. I deserve the worst of the consequences. And so what I have to learn to do is train myself not to think with the mind of the flesh. 
I have to train myself to think with the mind of the Spirit. And so what, what I do is I meditate on scriptures like Psalm 103 that says, that says God doesn't deal with us harshly as we deserve. That's mercy. But he embraces us because of what Christ has done for us. And so I would say to us that, that we have to learn not only to give mercy, we got to learn to receive mercy because God has been so good to us. As, as a wrap-up, I just want to give you a few, a few biblical illustrations. Sometimes I feel like when, when you know, I listen to podcasts or something like that, I can hear a pastor preach on one thing, and it's a very isolated, very narrow event. And uh, sometimes it makes me, me question things. But I, I want you to understand, this isn't like a one-time thing that happens in Scripture where God offers mercy after mercy after mercy. It is an ongoing repetitive thing. In the life of Noah and the consequences of the flood, the Bible indicates that there had been a growing evil and wickedness, and it had grown to such the point that only the, the thoughts of all people were only wicked and evil during that time. It gives the indication, like the psalmist talks about, that, that, that the cup of iniquity was rising to the brim. And when it gets to the brim and it begins to overflow, then justice ensues. We look at the flood and we see a wrathful, vengeful God that we cannot understand how he would cause billions of people to drown upon the face of the earth. This was not a one-day incident where God said, get right or get left. This was a moment where God said, listen to me, it took Noah 120 years just to build the ark. So, so for hundreds of years, the, the cup of iniquity, of, of profound sin had been growing and God had relented and he was merciful leading up to these events. You look at Jonah as he's sent to Nineveh. Jonah runs. He doesn't want to, to give mercy to the Ninevites. And rightfully so. They were Assyrians. They were, they were modern day terrorists. They were people, listen, you can read about the Assyrians. Their kings would take other kings and they would skin them alive. They would fillet the flesh off of their bodies and they would insulate their tents with the flesh of other kings. Wicked, evil, vile people. But God looked on them with mercy. And he said, I know they deserve judgment. I know they deserve death. I know they are wicked and vile people, but I've got to give them a chance. And as he did, the prophet in his, <laughs> and I love the authenticity of the scriptures. It reveals the character of all the men and women of God in the scriptures. And the prophet, the man of God, looks at him and says, God, I knew you were going to do this. I knew that if you sent me here, that you were going to be merciful to this wicked and vile people. Because Jonah lacked the understanding that he himself was a wicked and a vile person. So God gives them mercy. Moses and the Pharaoh, there are 10 plagues. And oftentimes all we focus on are the plagues and they were severe and they were judgment. But what we don't uh, always focus on is that there were breaks in between these levels of judgment. They were days of mercy for Pharaoh to repent, to turn to the Lord, to let the people go. It was opportunity after opportunity after opportunity was given to Pharaoh to come clean, to do what was right. But oftentimes we just so overlook those things. Ananias and Sapphira, 
in, in the book of Acts were struck down because, because evil had entered their heart and they had lied to the Holy Spirit. And what we see is, man, how, you know, my son, I'm so proud of him. He, he, all summer, he's been reading through the gospel of John and the book of Acts. And the other day, he was in the living room with my wife and I was in another room I was studying. And I heard him say something to the effect, mom, did that really happen? And he was talking about Ananias and Sapphira. Did God really kill them? And real quick, I wasn't going in there, but real quickly I texted my wife and I said, you better not mess this up, you know? <laughs> but what we fail, what we oftentimes fail to miss is that, yeah, did, did God come through with judgment? Yeah, but if you read the scripture, you find that he asked Sapphira, Sapphira, here's the amount that your husband said. Is that true? Twice, she lied to the Holy Spirit and then she lied to Peter. The book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We live in such fear, so many Christians and non-Christians for that matter, that believe that the tribulation of God has come into this earth and the wrath of God has come into this earth. We look upon the book of Revelation with such fear and with such fret and, and rightfully so. But can I tell you this? There are 21 judgments that happen over a seven year period of time. There are incremental moments of mercy so that people can turn to the Lord because God desires that all men and women be saved. But yet we focus so much on this part of who God is that sometimes we miss on this part of who God is in the same moment. God is giving break after break after break to the people of the earth so they can turn. As a matter of fact, at one point the Bible says the, the heavens were silenced and people were given an opportunity in the break of judgment to come clean with the Lord. And so I think what I would probably say to us today is, is this, and I'm closing. I don't know if Pastor Glenn is coming out, but um, this is what I would say to us. Is that as, as we go through life, if, if you've come clean with the Lord, if, if your heart is in a posture of repentance and humility and brokenness, I would say that the next step for, for all of us is to leave the shame behind, is to walk away from it. Because the shame, the Bible says, Paul, of all people, of all people, wrote in Romans 8 that in Christ, there's no longer condemnation, shame, guilt. And I think that we have to train ourselves not to stay stuck in the mud of our sin once it's been repented of and the forgiveness of God has washed over us. On the other side of things, I would say this, that if like you're in a place of life where um, you're dealing with a lot of things and I'm not minimizing anything, I think that life is incredibly far more complex than it was when, when you and I were teenagers. As you grow and you realize, wow, this is much more difficult than I realized. I know there are a lot of nuances. Uh, I know there are, there are a lot of difficult situations, but this is what I would say. If, if you're a person and you have not come clean with the Lord, perhaps this is a moment of mercy for you. You know what the scary part is between the, the dichotomy of God, the, 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 the nature of God and, and his justice being fulfilled and discipline and the goodness, merciful um, nature of God. The scary part is, is that we never know when that line of mercy ends and that side of judgment and discipline begins. You know, for Ananias and Sapphira, it was quick. 
For Achan, it took maybe an entire day. For the people of Israel, it took hundreds of years. But for me and for you, we don't know how long it'll take. We don't know how many opportunities before the Lord doesn't expose us in our most vulnerable place. And so I would say to us that, that if you were in a place where you need to come clean, you need to seize this moment of opportunity, I would say, please don't be your own worst enemy. Israel was her own greatest enemy. The Canaanites, the Philistines, they weren't her worst enemy. She was her worst enemy because she felt like she could handle things that she absolutely could not help. It's like a person that feels so sick for so long and they're afraid of going to the doctor because they're afraid of what the doctor will say. And then in the course of time, that sickness that could have been helped early on grows into something that's uncontainable and uncontrollable at a certain point simply because they didn't call out for the mercy. And so this morning, how I, how I kind of want to end, and I hate to end on such a hard, heavy, I, it is what it is. <laughs> this morning, I want to give, give us an opportunity. I know we are way late, but, but, but let me just tell you this. If, if this is applicable to, to your situation right now, time is not of the essence. It doesn't matter. And so I would say to us that I want to give an opportunity to kind of, uh, for those of us to come clean, I want to give an opportunity for those of us who have come clean just to kind of relish in the goodness of God, to give thanks for the merciful nature of God. Can you imagine where your life would be if not for the merciful nature of God? And so I'm going to ask you to stand real, real quickly with me. And... I am so sorry for going so late today. But I'm gonna ask you in this moment if, you, if you'll pray with me. Pastor Glenn's gonna lead us in a song and I understand, I know that many of you have to go, I understand. But for those that can, I want us to just take a moment. I'm not even gonna ask our ministry team to come up today because of this reason. I know the hesitancy that would be in someone in their mind to come clean in a room this size and all the speculation they may feel in their own mind. So I'm not gonna ask anybody to come forward today. But the good news is, is that you don't have to. The Bible says that if you confess your sin, that God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. Jesus is the only mediator we need. And he's here, he's readily available. As a matter of fact, in this moment, he's praying for us. So Father, this morning, we're so grateful for your mercy. I thank you, Lord, that you're so patient, you're so long-suffering with us. And my prayer, Lord, is that we will take to heart the events of Achan's life and that we will understand the gravity of what we're dealing with when we talk about sin. I pray today, Lord, that we will just come to the fountain of mercy and that we will drink deeply and that it will fill the innermost parts of us and we will relish in your goodness, God. I pray for those that may need to come clean regardless of the situation. And I wanna pray for the restorative work of the Holy Spirit to begin even in this moment. I wanna pray, Holy Spirit, that you will move and that you will, Lord, as you bring conviction and as we come clean and repent, that there is comfort right on the heels of that. 
So I pray, Lord, in this moment that you will saturate us with your presence, that you will do a deep work in every one of us as we give thanks to you for your mercy. We love you so much. In Christ's name, amen, amen, and amen. The Lord bless you this morning. If you need to go, we understand. If you're able to just sit and relish for a moment, we invite you to join us.